I got to let you know I have a big decision in front of me, okay? And this morning, I need some help from you guys as far as how I should decide this thing, how I ought to determine what God's will is for it. So I've come up with a tried and true method, and I want to see what you guys think of it. It's right here in my pocket. The coin flip. You guys been here? You guys don't think this is a good idea already? To make an important decision based on the flip of a coin? Okay, you guys aren't buying it, but either way, you need to vote. So heads means I go ahead and do it. Tail means I run with my tail up away from it. All right, does that work? Who thinks it's going to be heads? Raise your hand. I need everyone to vote for one or the other. You guys think it's heads? All right. Who thinks it's going to be tails? Okay, I think tails is winning. You don't want me to do this thing, okay? But we're going to let the coin decide. Now, first service, I flipped this up directly into the lights. I almost lost it, so I'm going to do it sideways today. You guys ready for this? We flip it. It's like an NFL game. What's going to happen? All right. It's tails. You guys called it. I don't have to do it. Thank you. Okay, you guys aren't buying that. Maybe there's a better way to make a godly decision, you think? I heard some. Uh, good, very good. Audience participation. That's good. All right. Maybe I should use the Bible for this one. Does that sound like a good idea? Yeah, use the Bible. All right. I call this the flipping point method, okay, where I open up somewhere and I point. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. All right, so let's, let's decipher this code together. Mountains. This is a mountain of a thing, right? It's hills. Maybe I need to decide the fruit trees and all cedars. I, I don't know. Sometimes I have bad luck in the Old Testament, though, so... Let's try the New Testament. Seems like it's a little easier to decipher sometimes. They first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. All right, so what I need to do is I need to find a way in this decision to make my money worth more money. Does that sound, that should be my deciding factor, right? No, you're not buying it. Okay, as a kid, there was a way that we decided these things, and this is very serious business, okay? We decided these things, rock, paper, scissors. That's not the one I'm thinking of. Does anyone happen to have that, that round device called a magic eight ball? Does anybody, anybody have one? Rick Dolphin, amazing. God's providence this morning, guys. It's not like it was staged or anything, okay? Can I give you the Jared? <laughs> Hand the ball over, Rick. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. All right. We got to make our decisions with this fancy device because clearly... This will determine to me what God's will in the situation is, okay? Should I do this thing? I'm not telling you what the thing is. You guys are like, there is no thing. You're probably right. Should I do this thing? Hmm. Try again. Cool. All right. So we try round two, and it says, ah, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 27, because that's actually where we're going to start today for this message. 1 Samuel chapter 27. Now, the task before me today is a little bit of a big one. You heard me, a little bit of a big one. And uh, you can blame Pastor Chris if you want, but he has tasked me with four chapters today of 1 Samuel. So we're going to cover 27, 28, 29, and 30, and I'm going to do the best job that I can of synthesizing some of this stuff for you. So we're mainly going to be in chapter 28 and chapter 30 today. But chapter 27 and 29 are also integral to the story. So I'm going to read those as well. And I'm going to summarize those more or less for you so that you get the idea of the text. But please go back later today. Spend some time this afternoon reading through these passages and considering to think of the things that, that I'm going to bring up to you today. So what way ought we to hear from God? That's the question that I'm going to bring before you today. Do we do heads or tails? Do we do the flipping point method, hoping that God would give us something that would lead us into his will? Do we use a magic eight ball? What do we do to try to figure out God's will? That's the question today. And I'm here to say that those ways are not ideal. And I think God has given a much, much better way for us to understand what we, he would have us do in our lives. And so we're going to talk about today. So first, let's pray and we'll begin. Jesus, thank you for all of your goodness to us. Thank you for... Um, really using all of us in various capacities to magnify your son and to make him great. I pray this morning that he would be seen as amazing, 
that you would be taught correctly and that uh, you would guide the words that I say and that your spirit would work in us today uh, as we open your word and that he would change us and make us more like Christ and help us to make decisions that are pleasing and honoring to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, if you look at the verse right before chapter 27, last week we ended with Saul was chasing David for 10 years, right? We talked about that. David spared Saul's life twice. And then finally, in verse 25 of chapter 26, it says, Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. In them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Looks like Saul has finally left David alone, right? This is the moment we've all been waiting for, the moment where Saul stops trying to kill this man of God, God's anointed one, and lets him go. Look at the next verse, chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. David knew that although Saul's words said one thing, he did not trust him. And I wouldn't trust the man who tried to spear me to a wall multiple times and hunted me for a decade either. And so I think for good reason, David does not trust Saul's words. So he says, I have nothing better to do but to flee to the land of the Philistines, to flee to Gath. I, that's my only option. If I can hide away enough there and they don't kill me, and then now Saul won't be pursuing me anymore. And you'll see, it works. He says, there is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel's, and I shall escape out of his hand. That is the context of this passage. In chapter 27 is a very brief summary. David gets uh, up to King Achish, and if you remember, King Achish was the same one that David tried to be insane before, where he let Pastor Chris's incredible impersonation of that. You guys remember? Where he was spitting on my iPad and stuff like that up here. Terrible. Anyways, this is the same guy that David was so afraid of that he pretended to be a lunatic in front of him so that he wouldn't get killed. And he let him off. This is the same Achish. So somehow David finds favor with this man, and he enters into King Achish's service. Now, a lot of the times when I say Philistines or Israel or King Achish or the land of Gath or the Amalekites, things like that, we don't really, who knows where those things are by automatic, you know, just default nature. Okay, one of you, two of you do, very good. I actually, I love maps and I always have used in a kid, so I'm going to put some maps up here for you. This is kind of a, a little bit of a zoomed in picture of uh, Israel at this time. And so if you see the darker area in the middle, uh, that is the area that King Saul had basically expanded his reign to. So when we talk about the Philistines, when you talk about Goliath, when you talk about the land of Gath, which was in the Philistines, that is this area over by the shoreline. That's in the green color, Philistia. That is where it is. If you see where uh, Hebron is, if you go a little bit northwest from there, that's the area of Gath, and that's where Goliath was from, and that's where Achish is the king of, okay? So David flees over from this central area over to him to hide from Saul, who is still in the center area of Israel. Make sense? Easy enough so far? So he goes and King Achish asks him, hey, David, what have you done today? And Saul, or David does something very slippery. And uh, just as a heads up, not everything in the Bible is a go and do likewise moment. Okay? This is not one of those, and chapter 28 is certainly not one of those. So learn from other people's mistakes and don't make the same ones. But regardless, this is what David did so that he wouldn't be killed. David went into King Achish's service, this evil king of the Philistines, and he was there for a year and four months, which is a long time. And every day, King Achish would come up to him, as it says in chapter 27, and say, hey, what have you done today? Where have you made a raid? And David would bend the truth. Instead of saying, um, I've actually been killing Israel's enemies, he said, I was, I was destroying some of your enemies, O king. And he said, oh, good. And the way David got away with this is he killed everyone when he would go to a city and declare war on it, he would kill everyone so that there was not a single survivor to come back and report likewise or otherwise. So he would say, oh, good, very good. And so David, by being very slippery, found favor with King Achish and therefore was protected in his service. Again, we're not encouraging you to go lie about what, what it is you're doing to people, but this is what happened. Okay, so that's what happens in chapter 27. David is there, and then you read, this in chapter 28, and we're going to spend a lot of time in 28 and 30. 28, it says this. In those days, the Philistines, again, the people on the shoreline from Philistia, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish, the king, said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. 
And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So he continues to find favor with him. But this is a problem, right? Is David really going to go in the enemy army and go kill his own people? No, I'm seeing some head nods. You don't think that's going to happen. This is a problem, though, because he's just told King Achish that that's what's going to happen. And so he's expected to go to war against his own people for the enemy. Very weird setup, but this sets up a problem that later on gets solved by God's providence. So that's what happens. Chapter 28, verse 3 says this. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, which is one of his own cities. And David had put the mediums and the necromancers, yes, those who talk to spirits and raise people from the dead and talk to them, he had put them out of the land, and for good reason. Verse 4, then the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. So we need to look at this next map. Go ahead and flip it, Declan. Thank you very much. So the Philistines come up along the coast, and they camp up, and you can see in the middle of the box, up towards the top, is Shunem. That's where the Philistine army is encamped. They are ready to have war against the Israelites. Israel's camp comes up, and they actually hang out at Mount Gilboa. If you can see that triangle within that box. They, their army is encamped upon that mountain. So this is the setup. They are, they're a little ways away from each other. But then it says this. Verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. Is this the first time Saul has been afraid when he's seen the army of the Philistines? Remember chapter 17, where David is the only one to step up and say, how dare you? Like, why would you be afraid of God's enemy? This is not the first time he's been afraid. This is a track record. And when, so he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. He is terrified. Verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, which is one of the things that the priest would wear that helped them sometimes in determining what to do, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, well, behold, there is a medium at Endor. Go ahead and look at the map here up at the top, about 10 miles away or less, less than that from Mount Gilboa where Saul and the Israelite army is. There happens to be a medium. You ever find that sin lies very closely at your door at times? I think this is one of those moments. His advisors say, oh, there happens to be one still here. And he goes. Verse 8, so Saul disguised himself, put on other garments, and went. He and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said to her, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. The woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God or one that has like a God-like appearance. I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is... He's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, Well, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Let's look real quickly at the map again. I'll go back to the last one, Declan. Amalek, the Amalekites, all are from the south in this region on, on, on the way to Egypt. So because Saul didn't wipe them out, chapter 15, Saul prophesied that he was going to tear the kingdom from him because of his persistent disobedience, okay? Got that straight? 
All right, so this is verse 18, the end of it here. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you this day. So God has, are, is doing what he has told you he would do. 19, moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. You wanted a word, Saul? There it is. Not only what was prophesied before, but now, moreover, verse 19, these things are going to happen to you. Tomorrow, you and your sons are going to be with me in the grave. And Israel is going to lose. You happy? This is the context of chapter 28. This is what happened. This is a model for what we ought not to do. There are many things that Saul does in here that are completely wrong and completely go against God's commands. In attempting to force his, a word from God, any word from God, Saul broke countless commandments, made poor decisions, and even cast more judgment upon himself, his family, and all Israel, and made other people sin. We would be wise to learn from Saul's mistakes. The first point that I want to bring out of this sermon uh, is this. In seeking God's will, we must remember what God has already said, not demand a new word from him. So if you're taking sermon notes, there is a sermon sheet that you can fill in some things to help you kind of guide you along today. But this is the first point. We must remember what God has already said, not demand a new word from him. In other words, don't ask for a new word when you didn't like the old one. Saul is afraid for his life. He sees the army of the Philistines, and on the eve of battle, he is afraid. He's terrified. His heart trembles greatly before him. And he fears that he might lose the battle and that he would, might even lose his own life. So, he asks the Lord what he should do. And usually, when we hear stories and someone asks the Lord what they should do, what happens? God responds. There is some type of answer. The psalmists talk about that very often. I cried to you for help, and you delivered me. We hear that often, but this is not one of those situations. He cries out to God and hears nothing but silence. God didn't give him a dream. He didn't give him a vision. He didn't speak to him from Urim. He didn't speak to him through the prophets. And if you remember, Saul was responsible for having Doeg kill 85 of the priests. So it shouldn't surprise him very much why he's not hearing from the priests. Why wouldn't God speak to him, remember? Remember what Samuel prophesied in chapter 15? It said this, number one, that God has rejected him as king. That's in verse 23 and 26. In chapter 15, verse 28, it says that God has torn the kingdom from him and given it to one who is better than him, namely David. And in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, it says in verse 14 that the spirit of the Lord actually departed from Saul. God was no longer with this man. And it's obvious. So when this man cries out to God because he's in a jam, he's not getting an answer. God has taken away Saul's position, he's taken away his future, and his very presence from Saul, because over and over and over again, Saul refused to heed the words of God and the commands of God, and instead did what was right in his own eyes. My question is, why in the world would Saul expect that he would get an answer from God now? He's been a tormented soul. Actually, God had sent a spirit to torment him because he was in such rebellion from him. Why in the world would he think that he would get an answer from God? He's been pushing away everything that God has said from, you know, the last probably 15 or 20 years. Why would he want to hear from God now? If you aren't willing to listen to his voice, why would God listen to yours? And this is a question for us to really ponder today. Does this look like this in your life? If you continually ignore God's voice through his word and refuse to repent of your folly and refuse to do what he would have you do, I'm not convinced that you should expect an answer from God either. God does not answer Saul. Maybe, I'm not saying that is the case, but maybe that's a reason why he's not answering some of us. Now, if you are a Christian, I must make this clear, God will never leave you. If you have been born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God now in the church area does not leave you. He gently guides you back to truth. But, here's the warning, if we continue to harden our hearts to God's ways and God's commands, wandering far from him, pushing him away, don't be surprised if God's not answering your requests. Back in chapter 15, Samuel made it very clear that to obey is better than to sacrifice. Obedience to God 
matters deeply to God because it exhibits that there is a heart behind that obedience that wants him in his ways. So what happens in verse 7? Let's all take a look. Saul runs further and further into sin. Chapter 28, verse 7. Saul says to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said, Yep, behold, there is a medium at Endor. Question for you guys. Is there any mystery that you can think of or that Bible readers would know of as to what God thinks when his people flee to the demonic world and the dark spirits of this world for guidance and help? Is that really a mystery to any of us? God has made this utterly clear. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says, There shall be found none among you who burns his son or daughter as an offering, which they would do to the God of Molech, anyone who practices divination or uses fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer, or, ding, 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 a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to him. An abomination is one of those big, mysterious words, but it means this, literally. It's a thing that causes disgust or hatred. When people are like, God is love, he doesn't hate anything. That's simply not true. He detests sin, and that's why Jesus came to die for it. These things are an abomination to him. But this is Saul's very next thought. I'll get my answer. God, you don't want to talk to me? I'll go around you. I don't care. I will find out my answer because I'm more afraid of people than I ever have been of you. This should be obvious to us that not only God forbids this, but he does not want any of us even to dabble in the spiritual world where we're clearly prohibited from doing so in the scriptures. So this is a a caveat, and I really don't know much about this because I've never entered into this, but really God's word is clear on this. So if you've ever been tempted to dabble with tarot cards and Ouija boards and fortune telling and weird things of that nature where the evil spirits of this world are actually involved, my caution to you and God's word clearly to you is don't even, don't go there. Don't even mess with it. I don't have any experience in this realm, but talking earlier, with this, earlier this week with some who have, it's not a place you want to go. Stay far away from that and seek God and God alone. You know, if we're being honest, though, it really would be nice if God would, like, implant some little device in us, maybe even from birth, that would notify us or tell us, like a little alarm maybe, beep, 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 that would tell us when we're going too far, when we're going the wrong way. Wouldn't that be nice? Almost sounds too good to be true. What if God has? What if God has given each one of us this thing called a conscience where we know of his existence, Romans 1, and we know of right and wrong, but we still choose away from that? This is the thing. Even Saul's conscience is condemning him here. It's very obvious. Let's take a peek at verse 8. Number one, he disguises himself, and he comes to this woman at night. Question, if you must disguise yourself so you're not recognized by anyone, and then must go at night where no one could even see you, do you think that this is a good idea? Odds are you're doing something wrong. Uh, I think of, of Moses back when he kills the Egyptian man before he flees to Midian, and it says, you know, He looked to the left, and he looked to the right, and then he did this. If you've got to look around to make sure someone's not watching you before you do something, odds are you're about to sin. And this is the case here, too. When it is dark and no one can see what you're doing, this is not something that would be pleasing to God, because darkness thrives in the night. Light shines in the daytime. Saul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this thing was wrong, He was just hoping he didn't get caught. Or maybe he didn't even care if he did. Sadly, many of us live this way at times. We try to deceive others and even try to deceive ourselves when we know what we are doing or what we are about to do is wrong. This is why we look around first. This is why we get nervous when someone enters the room and we've been gossiping. Oh, it's just you. It's because God has written on your heart. You know it's wrong. And God has hardwired you to know this. And so it's a help to you. This is why our first reaction when we see a police car on the road is to do that. And your foot automatically goes off the gas and right to the brake. You're like, someone's like, what's wrong? And you're like, oh, there was a cop. Well, were you doing something wrong? Uh, I, I might have been. I, I don't know. You know. 
what happens when you're going 80 miles an hour on the expressway and you see a cop in the median. The whole car, you wake up your kids and they're sleeping in the back. They're just, you jar everything because you know you're in the wrong. We know we're in the wrong. Oftentimes we're just trying to hide that very thing. The funny part of this story, and I say funny because, not ha-ha funny, but just insult to injury type of funny, is that even the witch herself warns Saul not to do this. Let's take a look at this. This is in verse 9. The woman said to him, after he requested this of her, surely you know what Saul has done. Like, you can't not know what Saul has decreed. He's kicked all of us out. By asking me to do this thing, you're, you're, making it, you're laying a trap for my death. You do realize this. So even the witch who does not want to honor God with her life and does these types of practices is warning Saul not to do this. This is how far gone he has gotten. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 13. This is a great verse for you to memorize in your times of temptation. It says that no temptation has overcome you, overtaken you, that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I believe that this was Saul's last way of escape and he did not take it. Therefore, God gives Saul what is coming to him, and he does give him a word. But it's not a word he likes. Let's look again at 16 through 19. Samuel said, why do you turn, why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke through me. He's accomplishing what he prophesied he would do through me, Saul. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, given it to your neighbor, David, who we'll come back to shortly, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, God has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, if that weren't enough, Saul, on top of all of that, this is what your deeds today have caused. The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me in the grave. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. You want a word, Saul? There you go. Happy now? But we're under this illusion so often that sinning and rebelling from God makes us happy, right? Really? That's what we think a lot of the time. That's why we do it, because we believe the lie that it's actually going to lead us to what we really want when all along God's commands are what we really want and need in life. But those are the things that Saul is rejecting to do his own thing. <clears throat> all his fears are now realized, and tomorrow he and his sons will join Samuel in the grave. So now we're going to look at an example in David of how somebody actually sought the Lord with God's favor. And so I'm going to summarize for you quickly chapter 29 and then we're going to focus in primarily on chapter 30. Chapter 29, my Bible says it's entitled The Philistines Reject David. So this is what's happening. Can we go back to that one map, Declan? This is the one where there's the battle line that's being drawn. Yeah. So from the south, from the coast, southwest, the army is marching up. And, and if you remember from the prior chapter, um, Saul, not Saul, sorry, King Achish had said, you realize, David, that you're coming with me to battle, right? We're coming back to that point. They're marching up to battle, and so they're marching. And this is how they marched back then, just like this. They're marching to war. No. They're marching to battle, and then some of the Philistine rulers and lords, some of these army commanders, as they're marching, they... They do a double take, and they see this man named David. And they remember a little song about this man named David. You guys remember the song? Sing it with me with Nana Nana Boo Boo. Ready? Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And so these commanders go up to King Achish, and they're like, because they're actually in the back. So David's men and King Achish are in the back as they're marching upward to battle. And they're like, um, hey, O king, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but you realize who that is, right? And King Akish tries to vie for him. He says, no, this is, he's been like an angel of God to me. He's no fault in my eyes. All this whole time he's been with me. And they're like, yeah, he's the one that they wrote that song about. And I'm not so comfortable standing next to him when he has a sword in his hand because he's like murdered all my friends. So if we could not have him come to battle with us, that would be ideal. And so King Akish talks to David and David's like, no, like, have I done something wrong in your eyes? And Kish is like, no, the problem is 
is that the lords don't really trust you in battle because you've murdered a lot of us. So because of that, we're going to have you go back home. And that's what happens. That's, a, that's my summary. Sorry, that's the Jared International Version of what happened in chapter 29. Please read it on your own. It'll be much better than what I just did. Um, so that's what's happening. Now, David, let's do the next map, Declan. This one, uh, yeah, exactly. So from Aphek, he gets this news. He marches back with his men. That's that deep uh, brown line back to this town called Ziklag. And Ziklag was that town that in chapter 27 that King Akish had given to David and his men to dwell in while they were in his service. So this is their city. They're marching back to their city, and this is the, the context for what happens in chapter 30, okay? So let's look at 30. Now David, or now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev. Now let's look at the map. You see the word Negev down there? This wilderness region to the south of Israel is called the Negev. And so it's either Negev or Negev, depending on when you're reading it, it changes the last letter of the name. But this is kind of wilderness area, and uh, this, is what's, this is where this is happening, okay? So they had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, which is good news for David and his men, but carried them off and went along their way. So the Amalekites, these people from the south that Saul never wiped out when he was supposed to, seized the opportunity, knowing that the Philistines and Israel are going to war up, up north, and they seized the opportunity to start raiding, pillaging, and plundering the land from the south. And they're very proud of themselves. You'll see. Uh, verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Very poetic, but these men were broken. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And since Pastor Chris gave me four chapters to cover, I'm going to let him explain to you the multiple wives in the Old Testament thing. That's going to be his job problem. So, uh, verse 6, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke now of stoning him. So his very own people are starting to blame him as their leader that this happened, and he is in great distress from it. And it says, all the people were bitter in soul, which in chapter 22 was the same description that they were given initially when all of David's men met him in the cave of Abdullam for their sons and their daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Verse 7, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. The ephod was what the priest would wear, and the priest is the one that would go before God on behalf of the people. He says, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar the priest brought it to David. Verse 8, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. David set out, and the 600 men also who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, which you can see in that map. It's the blue line that curves down on the bottom. That, that's the brook that they were coming to, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 men stayed behind those who were too exhausted to cross the brook. So verse 11, this, this kind of set up how God providentially leads David on the way. Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten anything or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man from Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. My master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against the which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and then I will take you down to this band. The next point of this message is this. In seeking God's will, just like David did, we must strengthen ourselves in the Lord, our God, amidst despair. This is what David did. They found their city, Ziklag, burned with fire, their families, their possessions, everything taken from them. And they go down, and the people are eating and being merry. That's what verse 16 says. When they had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land. Ha, 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 look what we did to them. Woo, party. 
in the midst of this, they're in despair. And verse 4 said that they had, they mourned until they didn't have any energy left to mourn. These men are weary, broken, and sapped. Worse yet, verse 6 says that the men wanted to stone David for this. They're blaming it all on the leader, and oftentimes that happens in life. But what did David do? Did he just give in to despair? Did he throw up his hands and say, fine, I'm done. I'm so sick of this, I'm just going to go back to Israel and let Saul kill me. I'm sick of you guys. No. It says very clearly and very calmly that he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David trusted and depended on God for his strength in the midst of despair, in the midst of mourning, in the midst of loneliness. The question for you this morning is really what do you depend on? And I'm not saying the flippant answer, oh, of course I depend on God. Like really, when you are in despair and you are lonely and you feel like people are out to get you and you just can't win for losing, what do you run to? These things are likely the idols of your life, the things that we believe for some reason that they're really going to satisfy us and really going to give us what it is we're wanting. These things do not satisfy. David clung to the only thing he knew that he had. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul longs after you. God, you are what I need. As the weary, tired, exhausted deer finally finds that stream he's looking for. That's how David viewed the God that he worshipped. In those moments, what do you run to? I think of my own kids, like when they're scared or frightened of something, they'll often, you know, run to me or to Callie and hold on to your leg. You guys ever have, have that happen or see that happen where they just cling to you? And they cling to you because they know you're safe and they know you're good and they know you're strong and the thing that's scary is not you. And so I, this, is, this is my refuge. This is what I want. It's what a kid does. They want to be held and they want to know that they're safe. In the same way, when we are weak and we are burdened and we are weary, and all alone, we must cling to God alone for our strength and our solace. We will not find it anywhere else. If you think you're finding it somewhere else, you're deceiving yourself. Ask the question, am I really happy? It's only found in God alone. I would say too many of us are lone ranger with our faith. And by that, I mean we just want to go it alone. We wrongly assume that independence is a signature of true faith and deep faith, when really dependence is the definition of faith. Believing in the one who is everything that I'm not. <laughs> this is what we believe as Christians. And too many of us try to walk this independent, macho role. I don't need anyone. Thank you for trying to help, but I, I'm above that. We've got to get past that. We've got to have a real faith that depends on God and, and really appreciates the people he sends our way. David had no other source of strength from which to draw. And so the question is, are you near to God in this way? When trials come, this, come your way, does it deepen your faith, or does it draw you farther away from God and you get angry and bitter and frustrated at him? David had this kind of faith that God alone would strengthen him and direct him, and therefore he called upon his name and waited for God to move before he did anything. This brings me to the next point. In seeking God's will, wait upon God and ask him for the okay, even when the answer might seem obvious to you. Think about this for a moment. The same Amalekites that Saul was told to wipe out because of their wickedness are now partying with all your stuff. It would seem really obvious, and I think it did for David's men and for David too, to go ahead and just say, well, God wanted them wiped out before, so I might as well just go. Right? My men are pretty tough, and uh, it's time to go unleash some havoc on these people and get back all that's ours. That would have been the very natural response, right? In our flesh, we think those types of things. Like, yeah, pretty obvious. And so when all the men are attacking David, he asks God because he has learned a lesson. Do you remember the, the conversation that he had with Abigail regarding Nabal? Nabal was this wicked, worthless fellow, it says. He was an absolute fool. And God intervened and brought, Ab and brought her to, to David just to say, hey, um, don't do this thing. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. Leave it to God. Pastor Chris talked about that last week. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It's not mine, declares me or you. It belongs to God alone. So being that, that that was the case, and he's had at least a year and four months to mull this one over, he now does what he has learned the lesson of. Okay? He waits upon God, even when the answer seems obvious to him. You can imagine that David's men wanted revenge, that David did too but God will take care of his own. 
The man after God's own heart did not take matters into his own hands when it seemed obvious to him and right in his own eyes, like Saul. Keep thinking about that story in chapter 28. But he sought the Lord's favor. He took the ephod, which was the priest's garment, and came before God and just inquired, God, what would you have me do? I think I know, but I don't want to go without you. What is your reaction? When something seems right in your own eyes, do you just go for it and just expect God to give you the stamp of approval that he'll be with you? Or do you trust God and let him lead you? Because there's a very big difference. When the Israelites finally escaped Egypt back in the book of Exodus, it said that God led them by this pillar of fire and this cloud by day and by night, right? We know that story. God went before them, and then his presence dwelled in the tabernacle that they built. And whenever God's presence would get up and move, then they'd pack up everything and go follow and then go where God went. That's the model, really, that David is is doing, and that's really what we ought to do, too. We need to let God move before we just take the initiative and, and jump with our own sinful reactions. This is what David does. I can imagine being in the, uh, in the Amazon forest, the Amazon jungle, right, where it's so thick you can't see around you, you don't know north from south, you have no idea where you are, but someone gave you a guide. And could you imagine that guide trying to say, okay, follow me, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I know that you've, like, grown up here and like know the way, and I've walked this tree up and down in snow hills both ways. I know that, but I'm going to just go this way because you need to follow me. Like, would that make any sense at all for somebody to do? No. It's a ridiculous example, but this is the same thing when we try to go without God's approval in our life, and we just try to go do our own thing expecting that he's going to tag along with us. Our God knows the way. Amen? And he has promised to be with us, to lead us, and to guide us. And too often, we ignore that because we want to do our own thing. And that's what we need to continually come before God and repent of. So God must lead us and we must seek to hear his voice. But this is the burning question. How then do we hear God's voice today? How do we hear God's voice? There's four things that I'm going to talk about. But before I do that, I remember when I was a kid, I uh, had just gotten saved. I was like 14 years old. And whatever it was that I wanted to know God's will for, I, I would read, like I read through the whole Bible in one year for the first time ever. And I was, I was excited to learn the ways of God. And I remember thinking, it seems like people ask and God answers all the time. So God should talk to me, right? And so I would pray and I would ask God of something and I would just be like, waiting. I said amen. That means I'm done. So Nothing. So maybe I didn't pray right. Okay, maybe I need to pray more passionately so God knows that I mean it this time. God, please show me what I should do. Waiting. Da, 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 da. Nothing. I don't hear anything. Have you guys ever wondered why God doesn't speak to us in that same way? Because it would be really nice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if God just spelled out, hey, Jared, Here's God's will for your life. It's a 35-page manual. It's outlined. It's neat and orderly. This is the way I would like it because I like systems. My wife can attest to that. I like things neatly packaged, and I like to know, obviously, what I'm supposed to do. That would be nice. Preach it, Doug. Thank you. That would be wonderful, but that's not what God has promised. We need to pay very good attention. Should we expect an audible voice? Should we have to, you know, search into a cave to find this hidden treasure that's known as God's will before we finally know what he would have for us? Do we need to wait for visions? Do we need a fleece? Do we need to wait for that to get wet and then next time we dry just to make sure? Like, what do we need to do to hear God's voice? What should we expect? The first thing is this. Wait for it. Wait for God's voice. Good. All right. Seek God's voice by his word through the spirit. Sorry if that doesn't sound extraordinary enough. For you, but it is because this is why God has revealed to us who He is, what He is like, how He has worked through history and His will for your life here. And unfortunately, so many times we try to discover God's will while this is closed and why we aren't even taking God's word seriously. We want to hear from you, God, but I don't really want to hear from you where you've actually spoken. Hebrews uh, chapter 1 says, uh, in the former days God spoke to us by prophets and through these various ways, but now he has spoken to us by his son. And one of the things that the scriptures call him is the incarnate word, the word that was made flesh for us. 
we have his son, we have his word, and his son wrote down his word for us so that we would know him and that we would cherish him and know his will for our lives. I'm not, hear me when I say this, I'm not completely discounting the reality that God can do things in very extraordinary ways. I think many of you have had those experiences, and I have too. But I want to say is those are extraordinary things, as in extraordinary, as in not normative, like exceptions to the rule. The surest way we can know the will of God is by the word of God. That is the surest way we have. And so God can work in other ways, so hear me on that. But the way he has chosen to communicate most clearly and most directly to us is through his word and we need to get to know it better. His word says uh, four quick things. Uh, this won't be on the screen, but four quick things about God's will. So if you ever want to know what God's will for your life is, here it is. Number one, 1 Thessalonians 4 says that God's will is this, your sanctification. That means your holiness. That means your Christ-likeness. So whenever you don't know what God's will is for you in a particular situation, remember that overall, God is interested in you becoming more like him, less like your old nature. That's the first one. The second one is this, and it comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God's will is that we rejoice always, we pray without ceasing, that we give thanks to him for all that he has done. Number three, God's will for you is that you will bear fruit and know him better. Paul makes this prayer in Colossians chapter 1 for the church there, that they would be strengthened by his glorious might and know him and his ways. And number four, God's will is that you be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you may know and be able to discern all wisdom. The second one is this, and I'll make it quick because time is wrapping up. Uh, do not follow your heart. If any one of your friends comes to you in a decision and says, you just need to follow your heart, say, you're a liar, and that's the worst advice you could ever give me, okay? The reality is, is our heart, and if by that we mean our flesh, which is what I think the Bible is talking about in that regard, the heart is what? Jeremiah 17, 9. It's deceitful. Who can know it? It's, it's deceitful beyond all things. It's desperately sick. Yeah, follow that. That's going to do really well for you. Don't follow your heart, but follow the new person that the Holy Spirit is making you to be. Follow the Spirit of God in you. Don't follow the old man in you. Do not follow your heart. The third one is this. Seek wisdom. And this one seems very, very Captain Obvious to us, and it should but the problem is, is most of us are so prideful that we don't really want to ask other people for help. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5 says this. This is a really hard verse. Get wisdom. The verb is get. The object of that verb is wisdom. Get it, okay? Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, her being wisdom. And she will keep you, love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. This is the beginning of wisdom. Ready? Here it is again. Get wisdom. It's not a very hard verse. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. This is what Solomon, we'll talk about him here in upcoming weeks, but this is what Solomon wrote, the book of Proverbs, so that we would seek godly wisdom and godly counsel. By saying this, I'm not saying, like, just get wisdom from anybody. Please, don't go to the friend that just always agrees with you. That sounds great to me. Really? I was kind of, I thought you'd tell me, okay, no. Don't go to that type of friend, but go to a friend who loves God so much more than they love you that they'll tell you the truth even when you don't want to hear it. That's the friendships that we're supposed to try to be cultivating in our faith. And sadly, many of them are just so surface level. Oh, how's the weather? How's your day? Good, good. How's the dog? Still eating food? Good. We need to get beyond that and get to a point where we develop trust with one another and let people speak wisdom into our lives. That's, that's number four. Three. Number four is this. Seek the glory of God. Romans 11, chapter 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. All glory belongs to God. And in your decision-making process, seek the things that are going to glorify God most. Sometimes those are very obvious. Sometimes they're not, and they need a lot of prayer, and they need a lot of wisdom. But if you are seeking in your heart to make sure that your objective and your motive deep down is to glorify God through this decision, and eventually you get to an impasse and you just can't decide, I'm going to liberate you from something, just pick one. And if you are seeking God's will and you're trusting that that's it, he's leading you there. Stop worrying about it. Put all of our worry aside. 
It'd be really nice if God gave us A, B, C, D, right, Doug? That would be really nice for guys like us if he just paved the way and told us what we are to do. But here's the deal. That's actually called sight. That's not called faith. Walking by faith means that we don't always see the outcome that might come our way, but it does mean we're walking by faith in the Son of God who gave his life for us. And so we need to trust in him. Matthew chapter 6 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. So again, if your heart is focused on wanting to do the will of God and wanting to honor him above all and in all and through all, then he's basically saying, stop worrying about these other things. Seek the kingdom. Everything else will be taken care of. God knows what you need. Stop your worry. Let it go and just trust in your God. Chapter 30 of 1 Samuel ends with David going down, raiding everybody, uh, destroying these wicked people, and being very blessed from it. And so that's how the story ends, and I want you to read these chapters if you can, if you can spend uh, 20, 25 minutes today just reading through these four chapters. It'll help you continue to put the picture together. But I want to end uh, with this. This is a quote from Kevin DeYoung, and it's a book that I was reading earlier this week. It's, it's, uh, it's very non-flashy, but this is it. God's will for your life is not very complicated. Obviously, living a Christian life is hard work, and whatever following or what following Jesus entails is not always clear in every situation. But as an overarching principle, the will of God for your life is pretty straightforward. Be holy like Jesus by the power of his spirit for his glory. If we're seeking to do those things, friends, we're not going to be tossed to and fro all the time by our waves of doubt. If we are seeking to do these things, God will be honored. He will be glorified. And your life will be blessed. And not in the you get everything you want type of way, but in the way of holiness. For that is what God wants for you. So, what is the will of God? How can we find it? Do we seek it by flipping a coin? The magic eight ball? Flipping point, my favorite. Please don't do that. Flipping point. How do we know God's will? God speaks to us through his word. And we can know him more and more as we trust in him and trust that he is guiding and and leading our way. And I pray that we will. The last thing that I want to say uh, in wrapping this up today is the will of God also includes this, that we turn from our sins and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And so, um, apart from Christ, we would not be able to know God. Apart from his word, we wouldn't be able to know the son. And apart from the son, we would not be able to know the father. And so we need to be very mindful of that. So today, we don't often do these types of things, but I just want to say very, very quickly, if you don't know God and you, this all stuff is new to you, um, just come talk to me after the service because I would love to share the hope that I have with you. And I know many, many other people in this church would love to do that as well because God has given us a purpose in this life. We're not just aimlessly walking through until the day we die. God wants something from us, and it's called faith. And so I pray that you would take opportunity that today. His word says, if today you hear his voice, what? Do not harden your hearts. And we don't want to be a people that do that. So I'm going to pray, and let's have the worship team come back and lead us in one closing song.